So, hello London. Good evening. Kalispera. Do you want to say hello as well or not? We'll see how good the evening. <laughs> so as you can see, it's my great honor and it's also great fun, uh, to, but it's also a serious moment in Europe that we are here in London. Uh, it's my great honor to... The guests were already introduced. Uh, and, but I must say, since uh, the Subversive Festival was mentioned, uh, Slavoj and Yanis Varoufakis actually met for the first time in Zagreb two years ago, when the situation in the European Union was pretty different than today. And today it's even worse. Uh, when they met, uh, Yanis Varoufakis was not yet uh, Minister of Finance of Greece. Uh, he's not more anymore, so uh, <laughs> this changed in the meantime as well. Uh, at the festival, we also had Alexis Tsipras, who was not Prime Minister of Greece yet, and Slavoj and Yanis participated at different uh, uh, lectures, roundtables. Uh, but tonight, I think it's a historical event. It's for, it's for the first time that they share a stage together. So a big applause again. As mentioned, when we were planning this event, uh, we couldn't even imagine that the Paris attacks would happen. So this is a reason why we will actually start by posing the question on the Paris attacks. Uh, it just happened several days ago. Uh, we, now we all know about the tragedy, but we also know about the reactions of the European leaders. Uh, Francois Hollande called it an act of war. Uh, Angela Merkel called for more control, for more surveillance. Uh, the, Belgium, the Belgian and the French Minister of Interiors warned us that there will be more flight controls, more surveillance, and actually everything resembles a 9-11 in, in Europe. Uh, but before we go into an analysis of the events and before we try to see what are the consequences of this event, uh, I would like to pose the first question to Yanis Varoufakis actually. Uh, you were supposed to be in Paris on a conference on the Plan B uh, on Saturday, but it was cancelled precisely because of the attacks in Paris. Uh, so, in a way, you are also involved, you couldn't be at the conference, but we are here tonight, so let's start with the Paris attacks. What is your comment on the, what happened on Friday in Paris? The genuine feeling is one that leads me to silence. The um, very notion of this brutality is one that, personally speaking, numbs me. The thoughts of solidarity, of uh, um, a shared grief for the pain of our friends and compatriots, I should say, because we are all one people, for the French people, um, are quite overwhelming. I'm very worried about the capacity of the ISIS thugs to create circumstances in Europe where we try to fight darkness, not with light, but with darkness. We are faced, and this I think should concentrate our mind, by people who were determined to kill themselves 
in order to close minds and to close borders. And the question for us, in Europe, everywhere, do we have what it takes to commit to the ultimate sacrifices we must make to keep open minds and open borders? How do you, Slavoj, uh, comment the reactions of the European leaders? Do you think they are appropriate or they are a bit too harsh? Okay, my reply will be a little bit longer, but first, I hope you allow me to make a very short statement. I hope we'll be able to return to this topic towards the end later. How proud I am to be here with Yanis, for otherwise I hate him, blah, 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 but <laughs> basically, no, for a very precise reason. Syriza was a unique experience. Why? Precisely because it overcame this simplistic opposition. Either you are inside and play just some social democratic, like new labor game. We play the game, but a little bit better, maybe. Or simple step outside, like the Greek uh, so-called uh, left platform. He stood for that magic third way, of course, not in the sense of new labor. The whole subversive potential of Syriza, that's why it was such a trauma, was that they wanted a radical change of European Union, but staying inside. Staying outside, it's not a problem. This is not an act of resistance. I mean, like, North Korea is definitely outside, and so on. You know, and that's why I think his destiny embodies this, the tragedy. The moment Syriza fell apart into those who capitulated and those who opted for the outside, it was over. You were literally that, what we Lacanians call object small a, the object of desire of Syriza, you know, maybe a tiny part, but you take that element, the politics for which you stood out, and simply the whole phenomenon somehow loses its interest. You have the standard duality of crazy pseudo-radical leftist and the conformist majority. But let me go to Paris events. Yes, I agree with your point. I would just try to elaborate it a little bit and so on. No? Like, uh, 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 you know, I think, and I agree here with you, we should avoid that leftist temptation of uh, a but. But, in the sense of, yes, we sympathize with the victims, but nonetheless this was uh, distorted, but justified reply against Western imperialism, blah, blah, blah. No, there should be no but for a true leftist. We should condemn the Paris, ah, 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 no, you will not get the liberal message. We should condemn it, but condemn it really. Because what's the true tragedy of events in Paris? It's double. First, did you notice how the political focus of European life went back down in the last month? The first half, it was Syriza. Whatever were there, the distortions, mistake, it was clear focus on the deadlock of capitalist system, of class struggle, and so on. Then, in the second half, it was refugees. It's obviously also 
class struggle, exploitation, our responsibility. But nonetheless, unfortunately, uh, the focus already shifted from socio-economic topics to, you know, all this, I hate it, humanitarian topics of, you know, uh, refugees, are we ready to understand them, to open ourselves to them? I, I hope I'll be able to talk later more about it because I think this entire approach is totally wrong, this humanization of refugees. I am ashamed when somebody says, but did you see them, there are people like us, and so on. What does this mean? That if we discover that they are not people like us, that then, sorry, you can drown there, and so on. I mean, it's easy to sympathize with a neighbor who is a fellow man like you. You know, but what if a neighbor is not exactly like you? Then the problem emerges. Another uh, thing here, I cannot uh, avoid a provocation. Uh, one of the most stupid pacifists, uh, you talked enough in the last month uh, on TV and so on, I, I will have my three, four, five minutes. Uh, uh, the most stupid saying, here I hate this liberal universal humanism, is an enemy is someone whose story we didn't yet hear, you know. Ah, thank, that's good to know, thanks. So it means Hitler was our, only our enemy because we didn't read enough of Mein Kampf and understood. No, that's the tragedy of violence today. If you look at it from the inside, I can guarantee you that even the worst criminals can always tell a wonderful story from the inside. No, here I'm the partisan of X-Files. The truth is outside. The truth in what you socially do in the horrors. The beautiful story you tell to yourself. Okay, so now uh, again, after refugees, tragic as it is, the Paris event is even a step further from the standpoint of political dynamic. Now there is not even this social problem, refugees, uh, of imperialism. It's simply us against them, a totally demonized, uh, irrational force and so on. And with all this disgusting uh, universal solidarity and so on and so on. Why is this not enough? I, uh, to finish, I just want to make one, but I think it's a crucial point. Uh, the formal aspect of these attacks, there is a great difference between attacked catastrophes, killings, in our Western metropolises and in third world or other countries. Without is we have our ordinary lives, like in Paris the last week, cafeterias are full, rock concerts, and then, boom, something happens, but happens and it's over. And then we have all this humanitarian bullshit, we sympathize and so on and so on. But you know, here I refer to a conservative philosopher, but he's not always a total idiot, Peter Sloterdijk, who said, are we aware that we in the West, we live as if in, a, in an isolated cupola. We see the outside, but we don't see the wall. We know about horrors going on out there in the third world and so on. But it's for us really another reality. We see through TV screens and so on. Only from time to time, we get a little bit of, like, moment... Don't look at me like this. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, when I look yeah. at you, you have a to Very stop. short, yes. Momentary 
momentary in, uh, momentary interruption. So for me, the most what what this Paris we should have unconditional solidarity with Paris people, but not just because they suffered, but because they got a taste, a momentary taste, one evening. What in many countries outside our cupola from Lebanon to Syria to Congo, not to mention all those countries, is their daily life. The most beautiful statement that I got from uh, a, a refugee, because, and that's the true tragedy, the greatest victim of Paris attacks will be refugees. And it's an obscenity, because they, who basically escape from the same terror that strike Paris, they are now, by European anti-immigrant right-wingers, portrayed as the other face of terror. So one of them said on Slovene TV something so beautiful. He said, all our sympathy to the people of Paris because what you experienced for one night, that, that was our permanent life there. And that's what we are escaping from. We have, I think that Paris murders should be also an instigation for us to become fully aware of incredible amount of all types of violence, religious, military, sexual violence, like in South Africa, my black friends are telling me, you know that there, every four minutes a woman is raped, every eight hours a woman is killed by her sexual partner and so on and so on. You know, we should learn to watch through the cracks of our Cupola. That's the temptation that you mentioned. Not to close our cupola, not the automatic anti-immigrant reaction of closing off the cupola. Okay, but this is precisely along this line I would like to pose uh, the question to Yanis. Uh, when I was traveling today by British Airways... But anyway, I explained wait, 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 everything wait, 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 already. Why should you... he be allowed Excuse to me? talk more? <laughs> Sorry, I stopped Erika. now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know the story because I told you already, but I think it brings us directly into, into the problem of this cupola. So when I was traveling, uh, it, it really surprised me by, by British Airways from Berlin today. At the beginning, when we were entering the plane, uh, the pilot uh, asked us for one minute silence for the victims of Paris attacks. Uh, so my question to, and we have seen that also Facebook has a safety, uh, safety button, there is a flag on Facebook, there is also a flag on YouTube. In Berlin you can see various buildings with a French flag, the same in London, the same Sydney Opera and so on. Uh, so my question is the obvious one. Uh, what about 19 people who died at the funeral in Baghdad the same day? What about Lebanon? Uh, don't you, Yanis, think that uh, uh, this cupola is a very cynical cupola and how can this be changed? How can the Europeans perceive that uh, actually, Juncker said the same what you just said, Slavoj, that's the surprise. He said that the refugees are fleeing precisely from ISIS and that they will be the biggest victims. From the same forces which attacked Paris. And who attacked Paris and why did they attack them? Because of Hollande who gave weapons to, to the rebels to overthrow Assad. So I would go into this direction of uh, uh, apparent paradoxes in this whole story. So we are fighting against terrorism, but we were the ones who actually created them in the first place. But let's start with the cynicism. Do you agree it's a cynicism of Europe again? But it's a humanitarian it's cynicism. <laughs> That's crucial. Call it what you will. The moment when the captain of the British Airways flight calls for a one-minute silence is not one that needs to be criticized or subverted uh, along the lines of 
the narrative that there is a cynicism involved. At that point, I think that what he did, and I assume it was a he, that what he did, it, it was well meant, and it should be taken as such. But it would be nice if we simply added to this adage a, a demand by passengers that we should have another minute of silence for the victims of Beirut, and a third minute of silence. For so the, it would be a long, for, silent, yeah, transatlantic effectively flight. Effectively, that it should be a silent flight. <laughs> Which will be Slavoj's utopia. Um, and so there should I be another minute of time, silence, no? maybe three minutes of silence for the 50 people whose corpses were floating in the Aegean Sea the other day. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, if we not challenge the cynicism, but add demands for respect to victims independently of whether they are part of this cocoon or not, then that is the way to subvert the dominant paradigm which says that uh, whenever there are 500 deaths, 400 deaths, 300 deaths in Syria, they go to page 26 of the New York Times, but then when there is a single death in the first world, it's huge headlines and running stories in the media for three days. Can I make a, this time a really short remark? Uh, and uh, totally agreeing with you, then I'm worried. We will just be friendly with each other. I want to see blood. Okay, but... There will be blood. There will be blood, okay. We yeah, promise yeah. you blood. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I totally agree with your line. I think that the worst thing and the true ethical temptation is this one. I will take first a pro-Palestinian statement. I saw recently in my own capital, Ljubljana, uh, uh, writing on the wall which says, if I were to be a Palestinian from Gaza, I would also have denied Holocaust. I think this is wrong because it exactly reproduces the Zionist thinking of we suffered so much in an indescribable way in, uh, in Holocaust that we can now basically do whatever we want and so on and so on. We should absolutely, our answer to the brutalities of Israel on the West Bank and so on, should be, uh, not only there should be a balance, like, okay, you suffer, but you shouldn't make others suffer, but no, what Israelis are doing there, mentioning the unimaginable horror of Holocaust as some kind of background which should make them uh, uh, safe from criticism of what they are doing now on the West Bank, they are the ones who are truly disrespecting and in an obscene way exploiting Holocaust. They are the true Holocaust deniers. And I'm not kidding here. The Israel is now literally approaching a Holocaust uh, denial. You know the last statement by Netanyahu that, uh, that it was really that uh, Husseini guy, the boss of Palestinians in the 30s, who in 1941 suggested to Hitler uh, to Hitler to do it, and so on and so on. Incidentally, and that's what I like about my Jewish friends, they immediately exploded in wonderful, further liberating humor. They said, making fun of Netanyahu, that now some archaeological uh, uh, discovery showed that when Pontius Pilatus was condemning Christ, there was a kind of a Mohammed figure we whispering him into the eye already to crucify. But seriously, what I, what I, uh, what I really uh, want to say here is that now more than ever, we should insist on the 
unity of the struggle. That's what, maybe we can return later to it, my ultimate horror is this cultural divide, the false one, in the sense of you support Palestinians, so you shouldn't emphasize too much Holocaust, or the Jews are threatened, and so on. It should be, it's not only that all of them, but we should take this as part of the same struggle. It is by fighting for Palestinian rights on the West Bank that we, critics of Israel, show the greatest possible respect to the, to the Holocaust. My last point, and then I shut up for some time. Ruth Kluger, a wonderful old Jewish lady whom I even met once, she was teaching, I think, at UCLA there. And this is the saddest lesson of terror. She wrote her memoirs as a young girl, she was in Auschwitz, and something traumatic happened to her. After her stay in Auschwitz, she survived, she went later to Israel, I think it was like this, and she was shocked to see there another Auschwitz survivor with number statut, making brutal attacks on Arabs, barbarians, and so on. And then she wrote, I had the saddest ethical insight. No, there is nothing liberating in extreme suffering, you know. Auschwitz was also, in this sense, an ethical catastrophe. It's not that if you survive Auschwitz as a victim, you will be absolutely sensitive to all suffering. No, you will also suffer the consequences. That's the saddest lesson of terror. We should drop this humanist idea, he really suffered, so he will know suffering of others. Unfortunately, no. Okay, here I would like... I'd like to return from, from Israel to Europe, although it's connected, as we have seen, uh, and pose a question to Yanis, of course, but Slava, you can also answer later, when, when, when Yanis answers. Um, I wonder for your fate after this talk, yeah, if but you it's will always survive, like yeah. that, and I always survive. I'm like the cartoon movie character, you know, I always survive somehow. Uh, actually, you mentioned it already. Um, don't you think, Yanis, and then what could be the answer of, of the European left? Because we, we to heard... What? Answer to, to what? what? But I will say it now if you, if you give me a second. <laughs> uh, that actually this situation with Paris, but also the situation with the refugees, and we have seen it in, in the Balkan countries, uh, we have seen it especially in Hungary during Or Orban's government, uh, with building a wall among our countries and so on, and especially now with Paris that it will actually serve as a gift for the radical right, for Le Pen in France, uh, for, the, for the UKIP in Britain, uh, and for all the new right-wing parties in Europe, uh, which will now actually use it again against those very people who were victims of the refugee crisis at the very beginning. Uh, so my question is, Janis, how can the European left, not a party, but a movement, and uh, we heard that you are building up a pan-European movement, how can it resist this? And won't the right be actually the biggest winner of, of this story? Well, the very... <laughs> sight of the French flag being projected on the London Eye in Berlin. In spite of the, the fact that Slavo is extremely critical of all this cynical, liberal um, industry of generating for solidarity, nevertheless, there is value to it. Because it reminds us that fences and borders in the name of creating security, breed insecurity. And I challenge any one of you to travel to the US-Mexican border, to travel 
and walk under the shadows of uh, the fence separating Palestinians from Palestinians and Palestinians from Israelis in Palestine. I invoke you to go to Belfast and walk around the so-called uh, peace wall. Go to any such harsh division. The arguments for having created those fences are always the same, to create security. And the outcome is always the opposite. These fences and these walls breed insecurity, they create tensions, and they perpetually divide not only the two communities that they were built to separate, but the very communities that were separated from each other. And this division continues to uh, unmitigate it. There is, the, the divisions divide and multiply all the time, and in the end, they even globalize. So let me give you an example of what we've done in Europe and in Greece, my country. The previous government, uh, in its infinite wisdom, decided to deal with the problem of refugees that were crossing from Turkey to Greece by building another huge fence between the two countries. What effect did that have? It simply increased the profits of the, of the people smugglers and it increased the death rate of those that made the crossing. It increased the appeal of the ultra-right in Greece because the ultra-right always feeds on fences and borders and the insecurity that these fences and borders create give rise to further shifts towards misanthropy that make the borders even more important, at least seemingly important. Now, in Europe, do you imagine that we would be having the problems we're having in dealing with the refugee crisis if we had not, over the last 10 years, been subjected to this process of fragmentation? The last 10 years in the European Union have been a period of divergence in the interest and in the name of further integration and an ever closer Europe. The result is that the constituent parts of Europe have been being pulled further apart. It's as if centrifugal forces are pulling us apart as a result of a very badly designed monetary economic union, which is creating a crisis that is turning one proud nation against the other. When the refugee crisis hit this summer, a few weeks before, a democratic government was crushed in Greece because the powers that be in Europe refused to exit their constant denial about this fragmentation. So I submit to you that the process of fragmentation at the economic level goes hand in hand with the erection of fences and the insecurity caused by the deflationary crisis in Europe as a result of a badly designed monetary union reinforces the political um, dynamic towards erecting barriers between our countries, between uh, the European Union and the rest of the world. At the very same time, the very concept of a European foreign policy, if you put these words together, European foreign and policy, you end up with the greatest joke in town. There's no such thing. Mm -hmm. And yet, Europeans are participating in all the events in the Middle East and elsewhere which are causing the refugees to come to our borders. 
and the borders that are dividing and multiplying as a result of the incredibly inane policies that we are creating. So the problem is Europe, or the absence of Europe. Europe is becoming increasingly a figment of our imagination. Europe is failing to behave as an entity that has a policy for problems that can only be treated at the level of Europe. The problem with refugees cannot be dealt with by Greece. It cannot be let, dealt by Croatia, by Germany, by Austria, by Britain for that matter. But how are we going to deal with this problem in a united Europe which is really disuniting and fragmenting and, dis and decoupling and deconstructing as a result of the fact that we seem to have smart missiles and smart bombs, but particularly inane political elites? Okay, another question for... No, 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 now you wait for one minute because... Croat, uh, terror. Uh, it's a compliment when it comes from you. I just realized that you, here in front of you, you have three representatives from the Balkans. I rest my case. I protest Slovenia. Every Slovene racist will tell you Slovenia is Central Europe, not Balkan. But uh, it's this my own. This is Europe. Yeah, but you this know what's so us. nice, and here you will agree with me, how, you know, I'm sorry if I repeat my old joke, but it's so true about the divisions of Europe that you said. You know, this is the Slovene nationalism. We are Middle Europa, Croatia, Balkan begins. Croats will tell you, no, we are still Europe, Serb orthodoxy is Balkan. Serb will tell you, no, we are Christianity, Europe, uh, uh, Albanians are really Balkan. So actually only Yanis is from the Balkans. Yeah, yeah. But then you oh, go the uh, other way. Our ultranationals yeah. Austrians, that, that Austrians will tell you, no, Slavs are Balkan, we are civilization. Germans will tell you, no, Austria, Hungarian Empire, already barbarian. French will tell you, there is something dark barbarian about Germany. And finally, I prefer the British position. All Europe is big Balkan with Brussels, New Constantinople, <laughs> and we are the only, and uh, unfortunately... Let me, let me add to this, let me yeah. add to this. The Eurozone started a different process. This is a standard uh, 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 dynamic in the Balkans that goes all the way up to Russia. But the, regarding Western Europe, the moment the Eurozone crisis began, Greece was the first domino to fall. We went bankrupt first. And then the Irish started saying that they are not Greece. And then immediately after that, Portugal staying, started saying that it's not Ireland. <laughs> Spain started saying it's not Portugal. France said it is not uh, Italy. Italy didn't get, even get a chance to say yeah. it's not Spain. <laughs> and that also reminds me of a, a vulgar, but not completely untrue history of the Eurozone. Tell it. I like vulgar yeah? stories. Tell it. Yeah. Do you know why? <laughs> Okay, here, here we go. This is, this is a joke. It's not analytically, strictly speaking, true. But there, is, there are elements, elements the negation. Yeah, sorry, so, go on. Now, yeah. here is why the euro was created. It was created because the French feared the Germans. The Spanish wanted to be like the French. The Portuguese didn't want to be like the Spanish. The Irish wanted to get out of the British Empire. The Dutch had already become German. The Belgians were split and they wanted to be both part of France and part of, part of Germany. And finally, the Germans feared the Germans. 
I thought you would say this because my answer is, and that's how I see, and I'm not just making fun here. I'm quite serious here now. The truth of your position for me was, no, we Greece, and nobody wants to be the Greek, that we Greece are not Greeks, we are the only true Europeans. And you were that when you were finance minister. But well, I, let, let me put it differently, yeah. because I, I, I cut my teeth as a young person in this country. I'm a Monty Python follower. So, what does this mean? I don't believe, you know, remember the scene, the standard scene? I'm not the Messiah. Oh, you are the Messiah. No, I'm not the Messiah. You, are, you don't need the Messiah. You don't need to follow anyone. You are all individuals. And somebody said, I'm not. There is no such thing as the Germans. There is no such thing as the Greeks. Now, most Greeks would probably disagree with everything I'm saying, or agree, but for reasons that I disagree with. There are Greeks that I loathe so much, more than any German I've ever hated, <laughs> that any sentence which begins with, the Greeks think that, is analytically fallacious, and completely misguiding. Because you have five Greeks, you get 10 opinions. It is impossible to start a sentence with the, the Greeks think that. I'm sure the same thing applies here. So there's no such thing as the Greeks and the Germans and so on and forth. There is yeah, a lot more divergence within my country than there is between us Greeks and the Germans. And this is, you know, it's not that the Greeks are the real Europeans. The real Europeans are the ones who understand that identity is one thing. Um, nationalism is something completely separate. That to be a true patriot, you have a true patriot supports his people or her people and criticizes their government until they deserve not to be criticized. And criticizes his own people when they are of wrong. Of course, of course. But, and then at the same time, one subverts one's understanding of what my people are. Are the Germans less my people than the Greek bankers and the Greek media owners that have been poisoning Greek democracy? I don't think so. I'd like to return to the, yeah, no, uh, before the applause, after the applause. No, wait, but wait, 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 uh, wait. can I just uh, uh, say how I agree with him? When I said the Greeks, I didn't mean I totally agree with you, these Greek people or whatever. And then, you know, when you ask, but what are the Greek people, you know, what is the Greekness of the Greek people, you usually get some stupid proverbs and wisdoms. And I hope we all agree. If there is something which for me embodies total bullshitting catastrophe are proverbs. You know, you know what are proverbs? Whatever you say, it can be justified by a proverb. Let's say you were to remain a finance minister and would make a risky measure. Let's say you were to succeed. There would be proverbs. Yeah, only those who risk profit and so on. Let's say you were to fail. There would be immediately proverbs to justify it. Like we in Slovenia, you have a, we have a vulgar proverb, you cannot urinate against the wind and so on and so on. <laughs> so when I said Greece, I didn't mean any Greek internal national. I mean for what the Greek government and Syriza stood at that point in European political dynamics. If we still, which can be very doubtful, uh, I agree, 
think, and we agree here, although we are more and more skeptical, that there is something potentially emancipatory in, I hate this notion, but I will use it, uh, 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 in European legacy, you, you Greek government, Syriza, stood for it. Can I now just briefly say something? Hey, it will be Can much more he scary. say something? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. he always does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, uh, we all know, so that you will not think that we are just kidding here, of course, concerning refugees, we all agree absolutely unconditionally that we Europeans, and that's what bothers me with this humanitarian approach. People are suffering them, we will help them. No, at a zero level I agree, my God. You see the people drowning, suffering, there is no debate. You help them. But there is something mystifying in this approach because the problem is not humanitarian. The problem is that not just we Europeans, but let's call it Western powers, we are at a multitude of levels directly responsible for this refugee crisis. Look first economically. We should begin to tell the story. My friend Alain Badiou drew my attention to it. Look, now they have a civil war in Central African Republic. Christian majority against Muslim minority in the Northeast. Now, as European racist, we will say, yes, of course, another of these fundamentalist ethnic conflicts. Hey, 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 if you look in detail, you find it that. The problem is that they discovered oil in the Northeast, and France is paradoxical, they're more supporting Muslims, and Chinese are, you know, like whenever, or Congo, what ethnic horror. Congo is at the same time a non-existing failed state and the state most included harmoniously into Western economy, all these local warlords and so on. Libya, take the example of Libya. Uh, take the, uh, okay, at first there is this economic exploitation, not to mention this catastrophe of global market with regard to agriculture, how countries lose their self-sufficiency and so on and so on. So we have economic neocolonialism, where even the Chinese are by far not innocent, incidentally. Then, politically, are we aware, and now I'm addressing you, of course, ironically, as good Christians. Rhetorically, yeah, I mean. the, the ultimate irony of American occupation of Iraq is that it was done, among others, by two justifications. First, even some American feminists supported it, like the position of women there is horrible, if we liberate Iraq it will be better, and be a, a, a Christian nation invaded a predominantly Muslim nation. The irony, A, do you know that there were almost, I think, two million Christians in Iraq under Saddam? Because that's the beautiful irony. Uh, Saddam's Iraq and Assad's Syria were, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the only two Middle East predominantly Muslim countries which were formally secular. Which is why, do you remember Tariq Aziz, Saddam's foreign minister, he was a Christian. You know what was the result of American occupation of Iraq? These local militias, Islamists took over, Christians were terrorized, now a large majority of Christians left Iraq. The, uh, uh, B, in spite of all his horrors, no sympathy for Saddam, 
He played a certain secular game. Women had important positions and so on and so on. So we are so deeply responsible or, uh, for, for this flow of refugees. Take Libya again or Syria. It's so ridiculous this debate, should we intervene or not? Even if we formally didn't, we already did intervene. There. I mean, it's clear that it's a battlefield of Russia supporting one side, uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia another side, and so on. So, but uh, what's my point here where maybe my position is a little bit problematic? I'm now, you will have your time to strike back, yes. Uh, uh, Why would I want to strike back when I agree with you? But because you're evil. It's just a we have to find something to disagree on, Slavoj. They're uh, getting no, bored. It will come. It will come. No, what I will... Okay, then I will go directly to a point where I generally agree with you, but maybe... But particularly not. Yeah, yes. I, of course... Now I will put it in as provocative terms as possible so that you can reply. Uh, uh, you know, your project is, among other things, democratize Europe, make it more transparent, and so on, and so on. Of course, who wouldn't? I totally agree. I would just add a couple of points, maybe you would simply agree with them. First, you know, and you don't think in this liberal way, I agree, but you know that this is one of the mantra of people like Habermas and so on, these liberal left Europeans. European Union is basically okay, it's just it has a democratic deficit. You know, this reminds me from when I was young of certain leftist sympathizers of Soviet Union where they said communism was okay, it just had a democratic deficit. No, in both cases, the democratic deficit is a necessary part of how the entire system works. So my point would just be that to do what you, to do what you propose, uh, many other things will okay. have to be changed Got because you. now I will give you the really evil example. You've already before, given me. Let Slavoj. me respond to this. Yeah. Before no, no, you no, give it, I'm going to respond very to this. Short, very let's short. stop at your first point because Sorry? I would yes. really like to hear Let the. Let's this. stop at your point by point. Let's okay. stop at I the first point. Brutally interrupted, and <laughs> I will stop. Okay, please. Yeah. Poor Slavoj. <laughs> I feel like a refugee here on yeah. the stage. <laughs> I will take you in. Don't worry. Ah, you'll no. give me your home and your wife? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I got him. I'm a socialist, but I don't share my wife, okay? Uh, I have different rules. Okay, I guys. share wife, but I don't share food. I guys, let's be serious here. I don't share food either. Sorry? I don't share food either, you see? Oh, we have some solidarity. There you are. <laughs> hey, you do that later. Let's... Be, okay. Let's talk about the point no, about this democratization. This is a very, very important point about the European Union. We, yeah, we're, yeah. we're in London, we are in the heart of a country that is uh, embroiled in this very important debate leading to the referendum. And I think that it's important to make this point and, and to actually have this, this little exchange on the possibility or the capacity, uh, or lack thereof, of the European Union to be reformed. Uh, Cameron wants to negotiate reforms to the European Union before he comes to you and recommends to you that you vote yes for staying in the European Union. So this is the big question. Can the European Union be reformed? And in particular, can it, from our left-wing perspective, can it become democratized in such a way that it's, it becomes part of the solution and not part of the problem? Yeah. At the moment, we agree entirely it's part of the problem. Let me take it a bit further. I like your analogy with the Soviet Union 
uh, and, and the old communists would defend saying, well, but we have a small problem, and you saying that, no, that was not a small problem. It was part of the design, <laughs> exactly as in the case of the European Union. But I want to be a bit more specific. The British state, the American state, how were these states brought into being? It was the result of centuries, of decades, of class conflict, of conflict between different vested interests. Initially, and that's what produced the Magna Carta in this country, it was the barons against the king. Then you had the merchants that came in with their own separate interests, fighting the other two sides. Then you had the proletariat. Uh, you had different uh, uh, parts of capital with its own vested interests, like financial capital, the banking sector versus industrial capital, uh, manufacturing. And the state emerged as part of an evolutionary process for regulating these conflicts with sovereignty, with uh, democratic processes, which became important because they were more efficient at regulating these conflicts. Now, compare and contrast that kind of system of governance state with the European Union. How was the European Union created? It was created in the late 1940s, designed and affected in the early 1950s, 1950 onwards, as a cartel of heavy industry. The first name of the European Union was the European community of coal and steel. So the manufacturers, the heavy industries of coal and steel in Belgium, in Holland, in Germany, in uh, eastern France, and in northern Italy became one cartel. And it happened under the stewardship of the United States of America and the New Dealers who were running the show at the time. And it was a very important part of that global post-war design, which was a very interesting design, and I'm not criticizing it, I'm simply stating it as a fact. Now, the problem is that you know, every cartel has its administration, like OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, has its own administration. That cartel had its administration, and it was located in Brussels. So Brussels began not as the government of a state, but it began as the administration minding the interests of the cartel, the purpose of which was to regulate competition, to prevent effectively competition between those industrialists. And that cartel then became expanded. So it's like a so big mafia family controlling... Yeah, so they, they co-opted the French farmers. It's called the Common Agricultural Policy. Yeah. Then they co-opted the bankers. Then they expanded geographically. But it still remained the, a technocracy in Brussels with deep contempt for democracy. Democracy was simply, for them, a process of elections that would validate their power to make decisions independently of the demos, or the demi, the plural of demos. Now, it is very important, at least from the perspective of those of us who are unfortunate enough to be living under the euro, to understand why the euro emerged. A cartel requires price stability. So OPEC is all about regulating the price of oil. The cartel of coal, steel, and all the other commodities that began to participate in that had to keep prices constant. That's the whole point of the raison d'etre of a cartel. Now, to keep prices constant when you have different countries, the exchange rates between those countries have to be maintained. 
But it was okay for the first 20 years because the Americans maintained those exchange rates at constant levels on behalf of the whole of the Western world. It was called the Bretton Woods system that was inaugurated in 1944. It was designed, it was inaugurated a bit later. John Maynard Keynes had played a role in designing it. His ideas were better than the ones that were used in the end, but that's another story. This system collapsed in 1971. And the Deutschmark value vis-a-vis -vis the Italian lira, the French mark started fluctuating. So the cartel that was the European common market was under pressure and it was very close to collapse. They had to stabilize the exchange rate, so they started the process of fixing them. It didn't work. Britain escaped one of those attempts to fix the exchange rates when Norman Lamont got you out of the Eurozone, of the Maastricht Treaty. Um, you remember, it was the instance that made George Soros a very rich man in the early 1990s. And then when that didn't work, they tried something much more drastic and radical, a common currency. But when Thatcher was completely right in her last appearance in the House of Commons as Prime Minister, that day after she had been dismissed by the vegetables in 10 Downing Street. That's what she used to call them, right? Call them, right? So in that appearance in the House of Commons, she made the point that who controls interest rates and monetary policy is a political matter. Monetary policy is about the politics of a country and the Eurozone is about the politics of Europe. I think this is more or less verbatim what Thatcher said. As a left-winger who spent his youth picketing against every policy Mrs. Thatcher had introduced, um, there is a, 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 an elegant joy to be had from eulogizing that particular intervention by Margaret Thatcher. She was completely right. What happens, therefore, is this. If you try to graft a common currency on top of the administration of a cartel, you end up with a horrible story. You end up with, an, firstly, a highly inefficient monetary system, one that creates Ponzi growth and an unsustainable boom at the beginning. That was the period between 2000 and 2008. And then a bust, which puts all the burden of the catastrophe on the weakest of shoulders in Greece, in Spain, in Ireland, and in those countries amongst the weakest of citizens. And the whole thing becomes a wound that festers and it is impossible to heal as long as the administration in Brussels and in Frankfurt, because we built the central bank there, continues to be in denial of the architectural design faults of this thing. So, so far what I've been doing is I've been arguing against my thesis. Because my thesis, as Slavoj said, is that it's a, it's a little bit like Hotel California, the last verse. You can check out of the European Union, you will get a chance to do it in the referendum, but you cannot really leave Europe. You cannot leave the European Union. Your trade will be with the European Union. The European Union will be designing the industrial standards the labor standards that you are going to have here by Tory governments, if you follow the um, advice of David Cameron, are always going to be slightly worse than the ones in <coughs> Europe, not that the ones in Europe are any good. The environmental standards are going to be a race to the bottom, which will intensify climate change, will intensify the damage that we're doing to the planet. So, 
My conclusion is this. The European Union as it is, is detrimental to the interests of Europeans. But its demise and fragmentation from decisions by the Brits, the Greeks, the Portuguese to get out of this, the fragmentation of this edifice that we have created is going to bring about a recessionary Germany, Holland, Baltics, Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and a stagflationary Latin Union, including Greece. I don't know where Greece will be in this terrible scheme of things. Imagine what will happen when the working poor in Germany become unemployed poor. Imagine what will happen when the total GDP gross domestic product of the Eurozone starts sliding as a result of the fragmentation of the European Union. Britain is going to be dragged down with a Europe that is fading, a Europe that is descending very quickly into a postmodern 1930s. So, either we democratize the European Union, or we are going to be facing the horrors of a new Great Depression without the prospects of a new deal like the one that an aristocrat like Franklin Roosevelt had the power and the political authority to effect in the United States. Okay, before Slavo, before Slavo intervenes, uh, could you specify because... Could you tell us, that would probably be a question and we will have an opportunity for a Q&A, so if you have answers, you can slowly start to prepare them. Uh, what would it, I mean, you've been part of the Eurogroup, you've been criticizing it pretty openly, and I would even go so far to say that Yanis Varoufakis is a whistleblower as well, the same as Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, and so on, in the sense that he revealed what is actually happening at this so-called institution called Eurogroup. So you have seen this. Uh, can you tell us actually from your experience, but very shortly or very long, so Slavoj doesn't have an opportunity to talk, uh, to tell us what would it concretely mean, <laughs> uh, what would it concretely mean to democratize Europe? I will try to be succinct. Firstly, having experienced the Eurogroup and the secrets, it's like a secret society and the fact that it, there are no rules governing the behavior of its participants is another <laughs> grievous issue here. What I would like to do in the first week that we have any authority to make any changes is how about live streaming all the meetings of the European Union Council and the Eurogroup? Yeah. I have no doubt, having witnessed them, that the outcome of these meetings would be very different if the citizens of Europe could hear and watch their leaders in action. And this is something that doesn't take a new treaty, a new constitution, institutional change. Uh, and let them tell us why they would resist the idea of allowing those who voted them to be there to represent them to take a peek at that which they propose on behalf of their electors. That's the first thing. The second thing, so that's in the very short term. Transparency is the first point. Transparency. But you know what? It's such a crucial point because there is no easier way than creating an autocracy than by keeping people who have a periodic right to vote in the dark. And the powers that be know that. I think that it's time that the rest of us realized. The second thing that we should do, 
Look, we have institutions in Europe. They're very badly designed. The European Central Bank was designed as if it was designed in order to cause a crisis, not to, to prevent it. The European Stability Mechanism, I personally prefer to refer to it as the European Instability Mechanism. The banking union that we've created is in reality a banking disunion. We have terrible institutions, but nevertheless, we can redeploy them without changing any of the rules, without changing the treaties, within a very few number of weeks, maybe two, three months. We can redeploy them in order to stabilize, not, not, not make any huge improvements, but stabilize the situation when it comes to the crisis of public debt, of underinvestment, of the banking system, and to do something in order to alleviate poverty. Imagine for one second, if poor families throughout the Europe, or the Eurozone at least, were to receive a check from the European Central Bank signed by Mario Draghi, that would allow them not to cash it for money, but to go to the supermarket and buy food so that they could put food on the table at that night so that their kids wouldn't go hungry in Greece, in Slovenia, in Eastern Germany for that matter. That would have an amazing unifying uh, effect. I can tell you, even the whole debate about refugees would change. If these checks happen, now you may say, oh, but this is such a left-wing utopia. It's not. It's what happens in the United States. They're called food stamps. And they get distributed. And the, you know what? In, in the United States, the official level of poverty at the moment is about 13 14%, people who are below the level of poverty. Without the food stamps, it would have been 26%. You have no idea what a unifying effect those food stamps have throughout the United States of America. It is connected to the capacity of even poor Americans to be, say, to be able to say, we the people, and to actually mean it, something we in Europe cannot do. The third thing that I would like to do is to set the target for, let's say, two years from now, to have a constitutional assembly where we, were going to, we will start tabula rasa, forget the European Parliament, it's not a real Parliament, it's a, a very interesting job creation scheme for uh, people who don't have the capacity to legislate. An assembly of citizens who get elected in order to discuss during six months, 12 months, one great question. How do we want Europe to be governed? And here I will invoke Tony Benn. The most important thing about democratizing any regime, whether it's in Britain, in Europe, in Slovenia, wherever, is to be able to ask those who make important decisions over you three or four important questions. What powers do you have? How did you get them? How, what use do you make of them? And how can we get rid of you? This is what the Constitutional Assembly should be able to answer. And let's also agree that whatever that Constitutional Assembly decides should be affected, implemented in Europe in the next 10 years. And I would like the British people to be part of that attempt rather than to think that you can retreat, you can actually add propellers to your beautiful island and sail away into a non-existent global economy that will replace the European Union for you. So, we started with the refugee crisis, and Slavoj jokingly referred to himself as a refugee, uh, but now we will involve into our discussion a real refugee who is living several meters from South Bank, and I would add, you can put people in prison today, but thanks God we have technology.
So I would like to ask you for a big applause for Julian Assange, Assange who will join us now. Hello, Julian. I don't, see, I don't see anything to do with me there, but I see you all, so that's uh, very nice. Actually, there is much to do with you. Um, uh, Slavoj said that uh, the European powers are directly responsible for the refugee crisis. And uh, recently, in the last weeks and days, especially also after the Paris attacks, you have WikiLeaks is claiming that uh, the US and the European powers are also responsible for the Paris attacks. Uh, so, could you please, uh, uh, you're sitting on uh, uh, tons of information, uh, could you reveal us some information which directly prove uh, that the Western powers are on the one hand responsible uh, for the refugee crisis and on the other hand also responsible uh, for the Paris attacks? I mean, it's a very sad situation. Um, my, uh, one of my children and my partner uh, live in Paris. Uh, it's a very difficult thing for me to, um, uh, to, to be isolated from them uh, in a situation like this. So I do, I understand the, the, the European upset, but I, just like as was mentioned before, I've also uh, been around long enough in understanding geopolitics and the interiors of these organizations to see uh, that what happened in Paris has been happening almost every day. Uh, in Syria, Iraq, and Libya uh, for the past five years. So if we go back, um, there's sort of two ways of looking at this. One is uh, WikiLeaks documents uh, of the US Embassy, as far back as 2006, show that the US had a serious campaign uh, to overthrow the government of Syria. Now that might not surprise some people that they're opposed to the government of Syria uh, because of Israel is sitting on Syrian land in the Golan Heights. Uh, Turkey is, has interests from the north. There's a Russian military base at Tartus, uh, which a lot of uh, old cold warriors like Brzezinski uh, feel is unfinished business from the Cold War, the last Russian naval base. Uh, can they finally get that? And you can see the Russian position in relation to Crimea and its naval base there, uh, that it's willing to throw in a lot uh, to preserve what it considers uh, one of its last remaining strategic assets outside of Russia. But the details of that are, uh, I mean, they're sickening. The US pushed not simply to uh, get rid of the Assad regime, uh, but to increase the paranoia of the Assad regime. That word is used directly make the Assad regime frightened that it was going to be subject to a coup. Military were, uh, could not be trusted. That paranoia was designed, it's explicitly stated, to cause the Assad government to, quote, overreact, unquote. As many other things like that, trying to prevent foreign investment in, in Syria to damage uh, its economy. Uh, refusing to cooperate uh, as late as 2010 uh, with Syrian calls to help it crack down on 
terrorists crossing over the border between Syria and Iraq. Uh, so there's, there's a litany of, in some ways, what you expect. Uh, US grand area geostrategy to try and destabilize Syria, um, uh, being pulled in to uh, perhaps in an interesting manner to the orbit of its regional allies, which have grown relatively stronger uh, as time has gone by. There is not a dominant Pax, Amer Pax Americana in the Middle East anymore. Uh, there is allies of the United States uh, who are very work very closely with it and uh, with Euro European countries like the United Kingdom. But they chafe uh, at the leash that has been put on them and want to go their own way, and they also pull their master uh, along with it. So that's uh, what's happened in Syria. Of course, you also have a government that uh, is a dictatorship uh, with a, a fairly terrible record, but not for the region. Uh, for the region, one of the few uh, remaining secular governments that the US has been knocking off uh, one by one. Uh, possibly because secularism was a, a, a quest of the left, which was supported by the Soviet Union. So these remaining secular governments are unfinished business to Cold War warriors. But I, want, I want to look a little bit at something else, which is a, uh, a spiritual dimension to what is going on. Um, I don't think everything can be explained just by geopolitics. Uh, and to illustrate that, I want to talk about Libya and what was Hillary's war. That's something that's not widely spoken about. It's very interesting that the Republicans have not taken this up. But Libya was Hillary's war. Hillary pushed hard for Libya. She also pushed hard to keep Hosni Mubarak. But she pushed hard for Libya over and above the recommendations made by Pentagon generals. Pentagon generals have subsequently come out through uh, a variety of testimonies and leaks saying we pushed against this. There was no proper plan for what happened in Libya. We didn't want another Iraq, which we're already having. And here is Hillary's response to the moment that she was told uh, that Gaddafi was killed. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, I, I sure did. So, I mean, that is the land of unconfirmed Yes, we came, we saw, we died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, I, I sure did. So, I mean, that is the land no, of sorry about this neither Slavoj could make a better joke, I think. Yeah. <laughs> neither him could imagine something more bizarre, I think. Hmm. Or, or he could. That is Hillary's response to a head of state uh, being sodomized and killed. How does that affect the, the psychology of the population in terms of what is, uh, what is the new norm endorsed by the superpower that just helped overthrow this government? That is the new norm. That is something embedded within Hillary Clinton. That personality that you just saw. That personality is going to be in the White House 80% chance, uh, if not more. The bookmakers have it at about 85% chance uh, in a year's time. It's going to couple 
with what we have been seeing uh, with ISIS. Now, if you've read uh, Dubkick, which is ISIS, uh, ISIS's magazine, uh, ISIS was clear at the time of the Charlie Hedbo attacks what its strategy is in the West. Uh, it's something that's evolved from a 2004 uh, strategy uh, document by one of Al-Qaeda's theoreticians. That, doc that older document is called the Management of Sav Savagery. But it is to cause a crackdown in the West on Muslims in order to eliminate the gray zone. Uh, that's that's Al-Qaeda's phrase. To eliminate this gray zone of Muslims that cross over between uh, being strict Muslims uh, and pussy-footing uh, with European notions of enlightenment or Christ Christian notions. And that's working splendidly right now. It's exactly what is going to happen. Uh, you can see that uh, with Hollande's statements. Hollande, rather than trying to preserve uh, the robustness of the French population, the robustness of the French character in response to such an attack. He's telling people to go to hospitals. He's whipping up the sense of communal fear, closing borders, overreacting in such a way that is guaranteed uh, to cause a long-term uh, crackdown uh, on the Muslim population. Of course, it's also been used to introduce a whole raft uh, of mass surveillance legislation justify, of course, the British surveillance bill that's right before Parliament now. So I, I think we are in a, a very awful time. I do not see the interaction with Islam in Europe uh, going anywhere good. Um, I see uh, extremism on both sides of the equation being generated by this interaction style. The basic underlying uh, te technological transformation, which has caused the breakdown in the borders between states, the communications breakdown, and therefore the organizational breakdown in the communications between states, is causing an interdigitization, an interperforation of what were national borders. And that seems like a dream in some respects. Uh, but in other respects, it, it means that the clashing intellectual and spiritual values of different groups start to interact with each other. Uh, there's no exit game. There's no exit strategy uh, for ISIS that has been presented to it. There's no exit strategy for those radicalized Muslims. There is no alternative ideological dream uh, for those people in Europe. There, there might have once been a communist or Marxist ideological dream that created uh, although they were difficult dictatorships, nonetheless secular dictatorships from the Ba'ath Party, those dreams are gone. I don't see anything that can occupy the mental space for young people who long for that dream. That would be a great project of the European left, of a potential renewed European left. I still find it hard to imagine. I think what the only hope is something, is something along the lines of a new Christianity, not Christianity, but the same kind of reformist notion of swapping out hate for some aspects of love that you have in Christianity. Now, it's not going to be Christianity because uh, uh, Islam postdates Christianity. 
Islam is competitive with Christianity. Islam removed most of Christianity from the regions in the Middle East that occupies. Not all of it, but most of it. There needs to be a reformed, if you like, a Christian version of Islam where the balance of uh, costs and benefits in the struggle that is occurring there moves to a benefit in relation to cooperation. Uh, Julian, uh, uh, before I give the floor to, to Slavo and to Yanis uh, to, to make a comment or also to ask you a question, uh, one thing and one worrying trend, trend which uh, connects uh, uh, the US and the European Union uh, is of course the TTIP agreement. And uh, one of the big achievements of WikiLeaks in the past weeks is that actually only through WikiLeaks uh, we now know some parts of this uh, secret until now agreement. Uh, can you just shortly, so we can also include uh, uh, Slavo and Yanis in the discussion, uh, tell us why, why do you think TTIP is dangerous and how will it change and affect our lives in Europe? TTIP and the triangle it is part of, the, uh, of a new uh, global economic and legal partition of the world uh, is, I think, the most ambitious concrete plan uh, since the creation of the European Union, uh, since possibly the creation of the WTO, although it goes much further. Um, okay, so you've got uh, TTIP, TISA, and TTIP. These are respectively TPP, the US uh, Pacific Australia uh, binding together. TPP, US and EU. Uh, TISA, 52 countries, and it uh, affects about 80% of the economy has to do with services. This creates a new global enclosure uh, where two thirds of global GDP are inside the triangle. 1.6 billion people are inside the triangle, uh, and the rest outside. What is outside? Essentially, all the non-Western countries uh, that are not allies in some way of the United States. So China, Russia, South Africa, India, um, in fact, most of the world, or nearly all of Africa, uh, is outside this triangle. Now, how has that come to be? How is such a titanic reordering uh, of the world's legal and economic system come to be. Whenever you have something really big happen, you know that there are multiple forces coming to be. Just like when Johannes was speaking about the construction of the European Union. Uh, you had very big uh, forces of coal and steel coming together. You also had something else. You had the Cold War uh, and the geostrategic reason for integrating the European Union. And then you had appeal to uh, liberal enlightenment values. With this, you have uh, large multinationals who have always wanted to get special deals to increase their monopoly power uh, in medicines, for example, uh, or in relation to copyrights. Uh, they've wanted to increase those powers always, and they're always pushing and lobbying for it. But finally, they were able to play the China card strategically. Uh, and that got the security and strategic forces involved in the United States and in Europe uh, and in Southeast Asia uh, onto the same page. And so it's happening. Now, Hillary Clinton calls TTIP uh, two years ago an economic NATO, uh, appealing to that uh, strategic vision of merging together the United States and Europe 
sucking Europe away from the uh, Eurasian integration that is happening uh, to the east. The Defence Secretary Ashton Carter earlier this year called TPP as important uh, for the rebalancing to Asia. By that they mean the what was previously called the Asia pivot, uh, which is a euphemism for uh, encirclement of China. Uh, more important for the rebalancing to Asia than another aircraft carrier. Put explicitly in these heavy geopolitical terms, in order uh, not simply to educate people within the security sector, he wasn't simply speaking at some think tank trying to discuss how we're we going to do it, but rather to get backing uh, for it passing through Congress, uh, which it successfully uh, has done. So that, I think, you know, I have different views about how the world comes to be, how different things come to be. I often think that strategists and people who portend themselves to be leaders uh, are always looking what's going to happen and leap in front of the train and say that way, go on train that way, uh, as if they're beckoning it forward. But actually they're, they're playing a certain game where things are moving in a particular direction anyway. Uh, and they want to establish uh, their leadership credentials by just being there in front. But here we have a unique situation where there's not so much an organic mass just going off in its own direction. For example, with the uh, change in prices of basic, basic commodities. Rather, we have a very organized, detailed plan, uh, which we have re uh, released uh, nearly all of ties are now uh, more, uh, very many chapters of TTIP, and tonight we're actually releasing a, uh, all of TPP into a searchable uh, form. But that organized plan is, in some ways, seems to be a vestige of something older and more classical, uh, which was these, you know, giant geostrategic theories with detailed plans that bind different countries together in different ways. But as it's the largest one, and it will uh, change, it will lock in, permanently lock in, uh, a more radical form of neoliberalism into Europe, uh, into Southeast Asia, into the United States. I think it, it really must be engaged in a similar way to which it was constructed. It must be intellectually engaged with and not just left to the vagarities of the weather and how market prices change and, and how people move. Uh, you also mentioned, uh, you made a hint uh, about the European left. So I think this is the chance that Yanis and Slavoj can also intervene. Uh, so what is, where is the European left? And what is the European left doing? Is it opposing TTIP, these trends which Julian mentions? And is the European left the answer to this problem? If I am now allowed my five minutes, yeah, I am, uh, first I must say I am, uh, I but he was very polite. What, I deeply agree with what uh, uh, Julian, uh, with what uh, Julian said, the key point here is the role of the European left, and now I am again, I will be really a dark pessimist, which by nature I am, because I would love to be true what you, Yanis, said your project of democratizing Europe. Uh, but I am uh, 
skeptic. But first, a remark on what already Junior, Junior, Julian was claiming, Middle East. It's so wrong to say we, Europe here, threat for the Middle, from the Middle East, just war. No, there is a terrible conflict going on among Arab countries. Are we aware that almost the war that is going there, it's not the war between Islam and Christianity, but between Shia and Sunnis. Point two, absolutely crucial. How imperialism, Western is absolutely involved in that war. Take the state, which is a kind of a uh, 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 how should you put it, political equivalent to all those monstered animals with three heads and five testicles, whatever. Saudi Arabia, which is on one hand a practically de facto a slave society, the most corrupt society, theocratic society, but at the same time a society which is in the most direct way included into Western banking institutions. You, Anis, must know this better than me, but I think that Saudi Arabia, through its investments, uh, is owning practically 10% of United States already. What I, I'm saying that this is the true problem. There you look for link with imperialism. Did you notice how in all this refugee crisis we don't talk about a very strange fact? which only the right-wingers mentioned, but in a totally wrong racist way. Sorry, but just beneath the crisis area there, we have five, six extremely wealthy states, which are even mostly Sunni Muslims. We have Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, Emirates. Where are they in this? Okay, you will say they are out of the conflict. They are not. The role of Saudi Arabia in Syria is absolutely crucial. Without Saudi Arabia and Turkey, the, uh, the, the Syrian crisis would not have happened, and so on and so on. So you see, this is, this is the key abomination. Saudi Arabia as a state. This crazy combination of the utter imaginable corruption masked as religious fundamentalism, but for the ruling class, which is uh, the king and all his 5,000 children, nephews, whatever, you have everything. I was there, I know. You have Ukrainian prostitutes, you have alcohol, drugs, as much as you want, and so on. But that's what we should bear in mind. Saudi Arabia is not a primitive Arab country. It is, but at the same time, country which is kind of an exposure of international financial capital. That would be my first point. Second pessimist point, and then I come back to your, uh, 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 Julian, your dream. You know, I would like this to be true. Let me now explode in my nastiest pessimist mind. When you say each ECB meetings public, let me play devil's advocate, I'm an ECB guy. Wonderful, we will just have a secret meeting day be, uh, the day before. You know what I mean? With you, change just that. All the changes that you enumerated, I think, can be something more has to happen. All, when you said democratizing Europe, let me tell you one of the saddest things that happened to me. I don't think I mentioned it today here. Recently, in the debate with Deutsche uh, Zeitung, some readers asked me questions when I gave an interview for this German daily newspaper, and the question which found the greatest echo among Germans was, I speak about democracy, but isn't Merkel here a dictatorial terrorist? Merkel invited foreigners to Germany. It's a big event for Germany, half a million, million people. 
Did she ask voters? Where is her democratic legitimization here and so on and so on? Now, I doubt that if there were to be a referendum, I'm here more pessimist than you, which side would have won? And uh, so you see what I mean? In the present constellation of media, ideological pressure, and so on and so on, I unfortunately think anti-immigrants, uh, 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 anti-immigrant races would have tri triumphed in this. So you see, this is what I'm trying to get at. Yes, I'm sorry. Democracy, I know what I'm saying now. Democracy sometimes doesn't work. People can be wrong. Yes, sometimes they don't know what they want, and they want what they don't know, and they are simply wrong. And I'm not saying here, as I was accused, also in a Habermasian way, enlightened political elite will uh, educate them. No, I totally agree with you. You know, people say there is a secret European uh, political elite. It's inefficient. It doesn't work. The, just the last point before I return, it's very important. Uh, I'm coming back to you, Julian, this idea of the common dream and so on. Yes, that's the key point. Utopian as it is, I don't see any solution without this. Because what makes me really depressed with many of left, radical left in Europe, is how they draw this line of distinction. We in Europe here, we fight for women's rights, abortion, gay marriages, but please believe me, I'm asking dozens of my radical leftist friends, what about Islam, uh, Muslims and these rights? And I always get the same answer. You know, in the present constellation of struggle, let's rather not mention this and so on, it's not opportune. But you have groups in Arab countries, I met them who fight for this. I will tell you one name, please remember it. Uh, Tamer Nafar, a Palestinian singer who, he was arrested already by Israel, attacks and so on, uh, Israel occupation, West Bank. At the same time, he writes wonderful songs against honor killings among the Arabs. These are our allies there. You know what happened to this guy? He visited recently with difficulty, my friend Udi Aloni got him a visa. He visited a UCLA campus in California, made a concert there where he sang that song, a song against honor killings. Uh, at the end, he was brutally attacked by stupid, politically correct leftists, claiming them, but why do you mention these honor killings? This is all the result of Israeli occupation. You are basically serving Zionist interests and so on. And I will quote him. Ta uh, Tamar gave a wonderful answer to these upper middle class white kids who want to play radicals. When you criticize me, you criticize my own community in English to impress your radical professors. I think in Arabic to protect women in my own hood and so on. This should be, I cannot accept this idea that on the one hand we have this uh, Islamists oppressed, even if they throw bombs, they somehow resist capitalism. No, up to a large point, I sympathize with them. I even think that the Palestinian knives attacks now are a kind of Benjaminian divine, uh, divine violence. And I go very far here. But 
but you won't go anymore. Sorry? sorry? No, no, sorry, no, wait sorry, a no, minute. I, I really, Julian fuck is you. here. Fuck the you. audience is here. Fuck no, you. please, come He on. was talking long. I, I am at you the end. But what language. I'm saying is this, that... that uh, wait, I would like really to hear Yanis' response uh, to the but challenge of democracy. But can I just finish? Democracy. Can I just finish the line? My line is, are we clear here that for me, this, that you find among uh, some radical leftists, this silent... Pro dismissal of every critique of Islam as a form of Islamophobia. It's an ideological political catastrophe. It's not only giving weapons to anti-immigrants, it's always a racist patronizing attitude towards the Arabs. There is a big problem. Yes, we have these disgusting Christian fundamentalists here, but Everything depends on this, that we connect our progressive European struggles with their struggles. That, for example, that we find a common language between our feminist and own struggles, their struggle for economic justice, and the last thing, immediately, to one half a minute only, to provoke you really, I think there is something deeply false, we agree here, he is the enemy, uh, uh, against this, you know, eternal self-accusation of, you know, Europe, whatever happens, in, it's all, as if the old idea of white man's burden, it's our, rule, our role to rule the world, is now reinterpreted by some stupid politically correct leftists as a, uh, as a uh, white man's burden in the sense that there is a slaughter in Rwanda, oh, it must be neocolonialism effect and so on and so on. I have a black friend from Rwanda who told me, stop being racist, and the beginning of ending your racism is, please don't patronize that admit us that we also can be evil of our own. You know, and last thing, all my African friends accept this. That was the greatness of Mandela and so on. Stop with this European soup. We did many horrible things, Europeans. But we have still the core of our great emancipatory legacy. My God, communism, feminism, these are European notions. And we should use them ruthlessly against our own limitations and as a chance for others to acquire freedom. So let's stop with this. We are guilty, whatever we are guilty. We should also be proud of some parts of our culture and defend them against the greatest threat to European culture, which are the anti-immigrant defenders of Europe. With, we, or in Europe, have the most potent ideological arm to fight this. And I would agree with you, Julian, about what you said, Christianity and so on, although for me it would be a kind of a you know, Christianity is a great religion because basically it says God is dead, we have Holy Spirit, which is for me the first name for the Communist Party, Community of Believers. I end now. Okay. He gave you a good... Slava just gave you a good schlagwort, what would they call in, in Deutschland, the Communist Party. But let's, before, before, before your response, let's just make uh, the dramaturgy of the proceeding of this event. So first we will hear your, your response to Slava, but also your comment also to, to what we yeah. heard from Julian. Uh, then we will ask Julian for a also very short comment. And then we will open the floor for the audience because we will have some democracy in Europe as well. I I thought so, Julian is out. Does he have the right to reply? 
Great story, Slavoj. <laughs> Isn't it enough that he's in an embassy closed for three years, so you would even... But can I make a lovingly evil mistake? You know that you look a little bit like Christ who survived crucifixion there. <laughs> no wonder you have this simple... You know Christ who got older and somehow crawled out of the cave and so on. <laughs> he's trying not to smile. Sorry? No, 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 no. He will be forced to smile when we take power. Okay, you, you go on. Yanis. You will allow me to start on a completely different point, but it connects with Julian's very essence and also the substance of what he was saying. And then I'll come to you, Slavo. Promise. The great paradox of the last 20, 30 years, at least one of the great paradoxes, is the fact that we celebrate constantly the information technological advances that allow us instant communication and complete transparency. And it is indeed true that we have the technological means to be connected in a way that we could not, well, I could not have imagined when I was growing up in Greece during the kernels. And at the very same time, while our capacity to be informed and to have a clear view of what's going on around the world is increasing in leaps and bounds exponentially, the actual information that we have about what's going on in our world is actually decreasing negatively exponentially. This disconnect between the steady technological improvement in our capacity to know and what we actually know about our world is, I think, one of the paradoxes which is dynamite in the foundations of our Western societies and which is responsible to a very large extent about the democratic deficit, not just in the European Union but elsewhere. And what I think that I would like to pay tribute to Julian for having turned Big Brother on his head. Because those capacities for technologically getting connected to the truth have been usurped by the powers that be in what has become a form of surveillance capitalism where the benefits of the technology are being put to use by those who want to deny the rest of us transparency and a view of what is going on. So you heard a number of stories and actually it's what Julian refers to as scientific journalism, which is, in other words, commentary based on actual documents. Documents that have been leaked or have been presented or discovered or retrieved somehow, which tells you what it was that Hillary Clinton said, what Assad said, what Putin said, and you don't have to rely on secondary and tertiary interpretation by some journalist who works for some conglomerate whose interests are highly intertwined with the vested interests that are part of the problem. Hearing the stories that come out of WikiLeaks, or actually reading them, independently of whether you like Julian or you agree with his interpretation of what he is receiving, but actually having first-hand information, access to these documents, reveals a world that is completely alien to anyone who relies on the media in order to understand. 
Those who rely on third-hand, fourth-hand, regurgitated information through the vested interests of the oligarchy in order to be informed about the world, they are condemned to be caught up in moments of terror when suddenly the facade that they, con that they confuse for reality explodes when an ISIS bomb or an Al-Qaeda bomb goes off. And they have absolutely no clue. And then what happens is they revert back to the same media who misinformed them in the first place for information about what had happened. The tribute I want to pay to Julian is that he, he gave us reason to be optimistic. Because if you, in an Orwellian way, technology tends to concentrate power by concentrating the capacity to know in the hands of those who do not want to put it into the service of the public. But what WikiLeaks tried to do, and I think this is the source of optimism, is it used the very same techniques, the very same technologies, in order to say to those who collect information in order to monopolize it, that you know what? That information will escape. And you are no, not safe in the monopoly of that information. That is the reason why he's in there. That is the reason why he's being persecuted. Because information, when, when it is concentrated in the way it's concentrated in the ECB, in the Eurogroup, in the debates about our future, and the TTIP, TTP, they sound like silly acronyms, but they are about the future. They have nothing to do with free trade agreements. Everybody wants free trade. Who wants and slave trade. Everybody wants free trade. But it's not about free trade. It's got nothing to do about barriers to the movement of goods and services. It's all about specifying who owns the right to the idea that will give rise to a good. Who has the patent? Who has the capacity to tell a certain industry, a certain pharmaceutical company, that in order to produce this uh, drug, you have to charge 80, 90 pounds per pill to those who absolutely need it. It's got to do with the labor standards, whether we are going to engage, be engaged in a global race to the bottom, where the enslavement of people in faraway places becomes instrumental and functional to the, our capacity to purchase cheap clothes and cheap gadgets on the high street. It has to do with environmental standards, whether our societies, our people, our polity, has the right even to say, for instance, that this pesticide or this genome is not to be used in our land because we consider it to be dangerous for the soil and for the water that we drink. These are the decisions that will shape the future, and they are being made without you knowing about it, in exactly the same way that the ACB is making these decisions. Now, if they want to break the law and have meetings prior to the official meetings, let them break the law. Then we'll have to chase them. There's no, you know, there's no law, there's no legal system, no constitution that is foolproof against vested interests and, and against abuse. But the fact that we don't have a law, that we don't have regulations in Europe, and the only regulations are the ones that preserve the monopoly of, of information for those who use it to keep us in the dark and to keep us 
disenfranchised and to keep us inimical to one another and inimical to the other, to the foreigners, to the Palestinians, to the Nigerians, to the Syrians, to, to, to the Muslims, to the, to the Christians, to whoever. This is the main game in town, and by town I mean the global village in which we live. And let me just finish by saying, just adding one last vignette to this, which uh, we may discuss later in the conversation, if anybody is interested. Capitalism is not wrong because it is creating inequality and injustice. Capital, the, my trouble, my qualm with capitalism is that it's a very inefficient way of utilizing human and non-human resources. It wastes human capacities, whole generations, it creates conflicts and, and antagonisms in order to preserve vested interests, and injustice and inequality are byproducts of this failure of, of rationality and efficiency. The left has failed in its critique of capitalism. We turned our humanism into the gulag. We turned our good intentions into a misanthropic power structure that abused the people that we're supposedly interested in helping. This is why from 1991 onwards, the left is on retreat. But capitalism will be overthrown, even without the left. The technologies that capitalism produces will overthrow capitalism. The 3D printer, the capacity of designers to to, to, to collaborate without going through a corporation, a corporate structure. They will undermine the purpose of corporations. They will deplete the value generation process at the very same time that output of gadgets is maximized. In the United States, Apple has started building factories for the first time shifting production from China back to the United States. Except that no Americans will be employed in them because they will be fully, fully robotized. The question is, who is going to buy the Apple Macintosh machines and the iPods? The robots will not. So there is going to be a crisis of realization, as Max used to say, that is going to be intensified by the technological process, pro progress. The same technological progress, which now concentrates information so that we do not see the determinants of our history, of our present, and of our future, and which people like Julian, by creating mechanisms by which we can turn the technologies against those who want to deny us this, this information, are creating a chance, a ray of light, of hope, that we can democratize the economic, social, and political dimensions of our existence. And I shall finish by one word, which is not going to detract from Slavoj's pessimism. Because I choose to be optimistic. I have no evidence that humanity can become master of its uh, faculties and of its fate. I choose as an axiom to believe that we can, simply because the moment you start on the basis of this axiomatic optimism, there is a possibility that the probability of democracy increases. Hope feeds hope. There is no evidence that this hope is justified, but there is plenty of evidence that without hope, we will succumb to the fear of fear, and the terrorists, in whatever form they take, are going to triumph against humanism.
No, so sorry, Slava, you can you can kill me later, but uh, uh, we are over time, and we really want to involve you as well in our discussion. So this is my last question and a very short answer by Julian. Uh, what uh, Janis just said is actually his hope that technology will succeed to overthrow capitalism. Uh, do you agree? Because when we, when we had the opportunity to speak last time, you said explicitly that your biggest fear is that if you don't do something or if the left doesn't realize that technology is so important as you have uh, shown now, uh, that in two or three years Silicon Valley will completely take over. Yeah, well, it's, it's a little hard to respond to Yanis because uh, we agree on so much. Um, okay, I try and try and try and move past it. Well, uh, I I like being an intellectual pessimist, um, and I agree at the at the end you just simply have to proceed anyway. But uh, I think it's it's necessary to be an intellectual pessimist to. To, uh, to cut through. Actually, I would even say that somehow um, the analytical part of the mind is better engaged in response uh, to, a, uh, to a mood of pessimism. It might be a mood of pessimism uh, touched with anger, uh, but I think nonetheless, intellectually, people are better better engage at trying to really understand something. And then, once you really understand it, uh, then you can, can try, then you become, uh, cons you develop a sort of a, um, constructive instinct, which is about building things. Um, okay. The, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time understanding Silicon Valley uh, because I was involved in the embryonic internet. Uh, I've been hacking Pentagon General's email since I was 17. Uh, and I've met a lot of these big players like, like Eric Schmidt. Uh, quite, quite frightening, uh, the chairman of Google. Uh, quite frightening the, uh, the world view of people like that. Uh, I think as individuals, probably emotionally fine. But the, the intellectual worldview and the poverty in that worldview but it is something that has circulated around Silicon Valley, and it is now <coughs> the most aggressive ideology on earth. This is high-tech liberalism. And high-tech liberalism uh, is dominating the competition uh, for ideas. I wouldn't even say there's any competition at all, frankly. Uh, there's maybe uh, uh, some frontiers of Islam, uh, are now engaged in a rapid ideological development. And over here we have high-tech liberalism. And I don't, I don't see actually anything uh, significant in terms of scale happening between the two. So high-tech liberalism is this philosophy of Silicon Valley that has merged with capitalism and it is all about where the future is proceeding. Now Google produced a book, um, The New Digital Age, uh, about two years ago. That explicitly uh, tried to claim uh, that intellectual leadership, not just in relation to economics, but in relation to uh, geopolitics. That Google would be Washington's geopolitical visionary. And the geopolitics of the world 
are now being coupled, at least in the United States, at this vision of Silicon Valley. The vision of Silicon Valley, basically put, is that Silicon Valley companies can manage everything better uh, through their scale and competency. Uh, and they are replacing various elements of even local uh, government now, these Silicon Valley companies. And when I hear back from people in India or China, uh, smart young people, and you ask, what, what do you want to do with your, with your life? And their answer is, well, if they're an average person, they want to go work for Facebook. If they're a bit more radical, uh, then they want to start their own Facebook. But in both countries, India and China, uh, the surrounding ideological context is, a, is an adoption of Silicon Valley. There's no, there's no chi we're going to do it the Chinese way. But what they mean by doing it the Chinese way uh, is simply doing it in China and having it staffed by Chinamen. That's the Chinese way. There is no uh, ideological alternative to what's going on. And, it, and it's, that new ideology is progressing at such a rapid rate uh, that I think if there's not uh, decent alternatives put on the table, both about how Silicon Valley came to be as a critique to the false myth that Silicon Valley has been putting out, and ideological alternatives about where we're going, uh, then we simply ab completely abandon the ideological uh, domain uh, to this high-tech neoliberalism. Uh, and Islam, which is the other radical Islam, is the, the only other um, expanding ideology. Thank you very much, Julian. Slavoj, uh, okay, my big gesture of solidarity tonight, I give you one minute and then we give uh, no minutes to no, the audience. Be really extremely short. Uh, first, uh, as Julian, you know very well, it's also very important to emphasize this, that uh, phrases like neoliberalism are deeply deceiving. Neoliberalism doesn't really exist in China, in the United States. State apparatuses are getting stronger and stronger. So uh, the, you make a very good example of China. Yes, yes, neoliberalism, Silicon Valley, with the big brother of the Communist Party. And in the United States, it's similar and so on. So we, uh, second point, WikiLeaks. That's why I totally support you, Julian. Uh, as I already wrote it years ago. Listen, what's so important about WikiLeaks, and this will be a very pessimist insight, is that we didn't up to a large extent. We didn't really, we learned details, but basically we all suspected this. But here comes my pessimism. It's not only that we embarrassed those in power, we embarrassed ourselves. Much of us, and that's the power of existing ideology, we, you know, what's the attitude of many everyday conformists? Okay, there is, uh, uh, we are controlled, but it's probably to catch criminals. Let's politely pretend it and let those in power do the dirty work. The greatest achievement of WikiLeaks is to make us ordinary people impossible to ignore this. We cannot act as if we don't know. The very last thing, capitalism, what you said. You know, I agree with you. I 
only have this option, which is not a pessimist, but just instigation to struggle, that, but what if what comes after capitalism as we know it can also be something even worse than today's capitalism? Okay. Thanks. No, we agree entirely. We agree entirely. But my, I, my, my point was that capitalism will overthrow itself, but what will come after that could very easily be the Matrix as a documentary. You mean the movie, the Matrix? Yes. Unfortunately, we came to an end, although we will continue, of course, now. Uh, not here, but <laughs> everywhere. I would like to, uh, to use the opportunity to thank uh, the team from South Bank uh, for providing the opportunity to have this evening. So and a big applause. Allowing... Yeah, very, very and And then also, I also like to thank Julian for being with us tonight and for sharing the precious information. And as, as Herzog and Kinski said, my lips defined uh, the unique and the original Slavoj. Okay, okay. And what you will say now, the ordinary non-unique Yanis or what? you next time even if it will take 10 years Julian will be here with us